0: If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to begin reading verses 3 through 11. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word... Truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you. Which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining? He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes." You see, one of the things that Scripture does over and over is tell us to examine ourselves, to check ourselves. And that's exactly what the Apostle John is doing here in this text. He's asking us to pause and think for a moment, am I, am I doing what I say I'm doing? Am I living the way I say I'm living? Am I walking in the light As he is in the light. And one of the tests we're gonna be dealing with this morning is our love for the brethren. Because our love for the brethren reveals whether or not we really are walking in the light. You see, it's very easy to tell everybody that you love them, it's very hard to do it in practice. It's very easy to just throw those words out there casually I love you, brother, I love you, sister. And yet, in reality, don't follow through. You see, this morning, the challenge for us is to check ourselves. So I want to challenge you as the pastor to not check someone else. Check yourself. The goal is not for you to think of this sermon as something that you get to evaluate someone else by. The goal for this sermon is for you to evaluate yourself and how you're doing. Because at the end of the day, you have no right to judge someone else for what God is asking you to examine. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at two things here. Number one, root out hypocrisy, verses 3 through 6. And number two, love others genuinely, verses 7 through 11. Let's start off with number one, root out hypocrisy, verses 3 through 6. Now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. You see, this is a very obvious hypocrisy that is being called out here by the Apostle John, that isn't so obvious to many in the church even today, saying that we are one with Christ while living, disregarding his commandments. How many things have we done this last week that we would say were in opposition to God and his commandments, but we disregarded the fact that we did them? Can you recall any right now? Obedience to God is an important assurance of salvation, believer. In fact, you know you know God because you keep his commandments, as this text says. If you're a child of God that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, your obedience to Scripture is proof for you of assurance. Don't expect assurance, believer, if you're constantly disregarding what is clearly stated in the Word of God. Many believers doubt and lack assurance simply because they don't fall in line with what the Word of God says. One of the often missed reasons for lack of the knowledge of God is why we lack assurance. We lack a knowledge of who God is and what He's done, and that is why we lack assurance. Which is one of the reasons why we have misconceptions of who God is, right? We tend to think God is out to get us if we're his children. Some of us were brought up under that. God is there to strike us down as soon as we sin. Not realizing that the Heavenly Father, and I want you to stop for a second and realize this, believer. He gave his son for you. He didn't give his son for you so he could strike you down when you sin. He gave his son for you so you could be spared, not stricken. Does God discipline his children? Oh, yes, he does. But he does it with an intention of conforming them to his son. The idea communicated here is one of one person saying they know God, but their lifestyle is full of hypocrisy. This is not a test of salvation here. This is a test of fellowship. A believer that shows the opposite of what is commanded is acting just like the unbeliever, just like they used to before knowing God. And every single one of us has that capacity. Don't ever assume because you've walked with God for so many years, you can't walk in darkness again. That just simply isn't true. One of the most difficult things to process sometimes for followers of Christ is the lack of assurance and overwhelming guilt that they feel over past sins that they've committed. In fact, I would argue that sometimes we feel more guilty over past sins than the present. So many of us go back to what we used to be and what we used to do that God was displeased with that we didn't even pay attention to what we did this last week. It hurt our walk just this last week because we dwelt on our past. There's an overwhelming guilt that we all feel sometimes when we disregard the clear teachings and commandments of Scripture. And particularly what he will mention throughout this epistle that we're going to get to here shortly. The negative example that's brought up here in this text is that the truth is not in him. A person that's living a hypocritical life saying, I love God, I walk in the light... But is not, and disregarding his commandments, the truth is not in him. The truth does not have a place in his heart at that time. It's not making its abode in that person's heart. It's not the dominating influence of his life at that time. I think every single one of us, if we were to be honest, in our walk with Christ, we've had moments where we did not have the influence of Scripture as the priority in our lives. I think every believer, if they were to be honest with themselves, knows that's the case. Oh, we did the practices, right? We looked good. We went to church that week. We we did a little reading maybe sometimes. But truth was not the primary control of our lives. The truth of God's word was not. This is not a profession of salvation. It's a profession of fellowship with God. This is the part that's very difficult sometimes for those of us that are leaders in the church is encouraging the flock that's struggling with sin while at the same time discouraging outright disregard for scripture. Because there are believers that truly struggle with sin and they feel guilt all the time. And there are are believers who have almost, if you will, seared their conscience towards sin. And they could care less what they do. The positive example here that's mentioned in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. The love of God being perfected can be taken one of different ways. It could be taken as the objective genitive, which is our love for God is being perfected as we obey God. It's very strongly supported here. It could also be a subjective genitive. It's possible, as it's found in the epistle later on. It could also be qualitative. Love is a divine quality, and divine love is perfected by obedience. I don't think this one's in view here. Or it could be a plenary genitive, both objective and subjective. The point is is that God's working in our hearts, and we sense it by the way we live our lives. By our commandments that we actually fulfill, that he asks. Perfected. The idea here is something that's complete, something that's brought to maturity. Something that's reached its goal. Your love for the things of God should mature, believer. Why is it that so many believers start so red hot for God, and by the time they finish the race, they're worn out and don't care? And I want to just postulate this for a moment, that maybe so many have assumed that they've been walking in the light all these years, and they've really been walking in darkness. It's not an age thing to be passionate about the things of God. So many adults in the faith think that only children should be passionate like they are. You should be passionate with your knowledge, believer. Not just the young person that just came to saving faith. Paul finished the race well. Normally, John uses... This phrase, in him, in a relational fellowship concept. Just as we find back in the upper room discourse, the concept of abiding in the vine. If God's love is perfected in us, we are abiding in him. Here John shows us a person who has a deep and mature realization for the love of God, and he obeys God's commandments as God's love is reciprocated. The meaning of abide is to remain in one place with someone. Metaphorically, remaining in a sphere of life. Theologically, it means to be in communion with that person. Not simply union, but communion. The maturity of a believer abiding is demonstrated in their experience of a more confident assurance that even when they stumble, their father cares for them. They have fellowship that's been established by the son. Think of it as a child trusting their father the more they've grown as they're growing up, they trust their father more and more because he's proven himself to them. I don't know how many of you have had good fathers. And I know for some it's a tough subject because not everybody had a good father. But I venture to say for me, I watched my dad growing up and I didn't understand a lot of the things that he taught me. I didn't understand why he was so adamant that I honor mom. I didn't understand why very few things riled him up as much as our disrespect and dishonoring of mom. Years later, I got it. I understand it now. I used to have a relationship with my mother that was not shall I say on good terms. And I don't know how many of you know this, but when I was working through the text in Ephesians of honor your father and your mother, God convicted me behind the scenes. Roman, you have not honored your mother well. And that was the moment that God really clearly put everything in place to what my dad talked about years ago with me. Oh, I knew it up here. Experientially, it wasn't there. And I want to challenge you, believer, that just because you know a lot of things about God doesn't mean you know him. Just because you say you know people, you don't really know them. Just because you, in theory, know what the word says to do doesn't mean you're really practicing that. And the reason I say that is because I know I am like that. Walking as Jesus walked does not mean that we do all the miracles that he did on this earth, okay? Walking as Jesus walks means that our lives ought to reflect what he did while he was on this earth. So ways that this is applied, if we're looking at this text here, to be clear that he says ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Well, here's one. Being an example to others in obedience to the Father. That's what Jesus was. What God commands is not optional, but to be obeyed, just as Jesus submitted to the will of his heavenly Father. You see, in John chapter 5, verse 30, listen to what's said here. I can of myself do nothing. Oh, wait a second. This is Jesus speaking. I don't know if you realize that. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. You want to walk as Jesus walked? Submit to the will of the Father. Stop assuming you know better. Here's another way that this is applied. Resist temptation as Jesus did using the word of God when Satan came to tempt him in the wilderness. You see, it's amazing how cocky Christians think they can be to outsmart the powers of Satan and demons. It's amazing that they think they can outsmart the powers of darkness with their intellect or with their methodology. If I just think positive thoughts, it'll all go away. Have you tried that with sin? How well does that work? Just think more positively about that sin, and you'll be be free from it tomorrow. I've yet to see anybody pull that off successfully. The lack of knowledge of Scripture, it's proof positive that many Christians don't follow the Jesus they say they follow. Because even Jesus... As an example to us, showed how important knowing the word in its context is. If Jesus himself needed the word of God, you do too. If you're saying you're a follower of his, oh, I follow Jesus. He's in my own imagination. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible followed the Bible, he followed the will of the Father. Remember one thing, believer. Satan, when he tempts, can still use God's own word against you. Did you know that? And he's a lot better than you think he is at it. He'll twist what it means. Case of Eve, has God really said? It's a very popular quote today in Christian circles. Did God really mean that about this sin? I don't think he did. What they don't realize that's literally the oldest trick in the Bible. The first thing that that Satan even did with Eve. Did God really say? Are you sure? Just doubt what God really said. Or completely misquote out of context as he did with Jesus. Right? What does he say to Jesus? He will give his angels charge over him. Just Jump. angels will come and rescue you. What a verse taken out of context. Sounds encouraging, doesn't it? I mean, like Satan's trying to encourage the Lord, right? Like the angels will take care of it. What does Jesus say? In Luke 4 4, but Jesus answered him saying, it is written man shall not live by bread alone but by every word of God. Jesus being hungry and having a real need shows us clearly that spiritual food is what matters most in temptation. So many want their needs met outside of God and wonder why it leaves them hanging every time. If I just had that kind of person in my life, everything would be perfect. Um, That person isn't Jesus, they're not God, they don't have that capacity. If I just had a better job, everything would be perfect. How many of us have ever thought that? It's not going to be perfect. If I just had this situation work out this way, then I'd be great. And then we're left longing still. It is not enough, believer, to know the Bible. It is of utmost importance to understand the Bible in its context. Else you misinterpret the text like Satan himself does. Many believers are deceived by Satan because they're doing the very thing he does. Misquoting scripture all the time. Here's why it's important to know scripture in its context. Else you'll be surprised when you quote, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength and everything in your world still falls apart. But that verse says, it it pulled it out of context there. Jesus showed a pattern of spiritual disciplines of prayer alone before the Father as well. In Matthew 14, 23, here's what it says. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. So Jesus goes out in the evening, and also in the morning, Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Whether it's morning or evening, Jesus made it a priority to go before the Father in prayer. Jesus had a close walk with the Father that extended into the night and even began before others were up. You're never more like Jesus than when you make these things a priority. The things that matter to Him, even when He was on this earth and set the example for us. So many of us are like, I want to be like Jesus. I want to live like He lived, pray like He prayed. Submit to the will of the Father as he did. Stop disagreeing with God and thinking you know better. Any disciple of Jesus that doesn't want to follow his example is essentially saying they know better how to walk this life than he did. Why did you even need him? if You still want to do your own thing. The son had such a connection to the father. Just think of how much you and I need that. Did you know that you were adopted? You have access because of Jesus to the father. Why are you not taking advantage of that? What John will do as we continue in this text is give a specific commandment. Once he said, we ought to walk as Jesus said, walk. He gets to a specific point here. Number two, love others genuinely. Here's a commandment that is to be followed, verses 7 through 11. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John's saying, listen, you need to walk like Jesus does. And he gives us a specific test. Love for the brethren. Love for the brethren. An old slash new commandment. In fact, loving each other has always been a command. Did you know that, believer? In fact, in Leviticus 19, verse 18, here's what it says. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is something that they would have known for quite some time. From the beginning... From the start of their Christian life, it's something they were taught already. And the ways that it's new, it's to be always fresh, new opportunities for expression. Believer, have you ever gotten stale in the way that you show love to others? Meaning you kind of do the same thing all the time because it's always worked. Yeah, that person needs this, so I'll just do this again. Oh, I haven't said something to that person in a while. Let me go text them quickly. Hope you're doing fine. Believer, you and I should be looking for new expressions of love towards one another. New ways to show one another that you matter as a brother or sister. Verse 8. It's true in Christ as he demonstrated in a way that they had never known. Jesus went further than anyone else has gone for those he loved. Jesus laid his life down for them. That's the mark of a real friend. Not one that's just there during the bad times, but one that takes your bad times and they apply to them. One that takes the loneliness and they're lonely. One that takes the the sin and shame and they become that on a cross. The characterization of a Christian who is hating the brethren, verses 9 through 11, is as follows. First of all, we read that they are walking in darkness. Walking in darkness. To say a Christian cannot walk in darkness ignores the context up to this point. So many commentators will say, This can't be believers. And I wonder if they've ever looked in their own heart when they say those statements. Not to judge those brothers, I love them. Are we being honest? Christians can and do hate their brothers and sisters at times, do they not? The pain caused can be very deep. Any objection minimizes John's reference to hating a brother, which is why he's talking to saints. There's no need to say brother if you're not talking to the church. In Matthew 18, we get a lesson that is taught by Jesus to his disciples. The lesson of humility. In Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5, we read the following. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called the little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. You see, the discussion arises about the greatness in the kingdom. Who is going to be great, Jesus? Who's going to be the top, if you will, in the kingdom? Who's going to have the special privileges of being right near you? Jesus sets a child right in front of them. And the lesson that he teaches them is children were meant to look to adults for an example, not the other way around. Jesus is giving them a principle here. He's not telling them to get converted again. He's saying that just as you had to come in humility in conversion, humility is required to be great in the kingdom. Jesus explaining that the means for kingdom greatness is the same as kingdom entrance. Humility. Believer, you have nothing to boast of as a saint. The key to a closer walk with God is the humility which with you started with. So many believers that allow pride to creep in and take over are the very believers to whom this text is applying. The ones that hate their brethren. Because a lot of believers have what you would call a faux humility. A fake humility. Oh, they practice things a certain way. They look a certain way. But if you were to really look into their heart, you would see pride built up. And that pride comes out in their hatred towards brothers and sisters. Instead of making much of your progress in certain areas thinking you've somehow achieved something, believer, stay humble. Just as you started relying on Christ in the beginning, you ought to continue relying on Him today. Unfortunately, so many of us kind of go, I got it from here. How does it work out for us? You fall into one of two ditches when you do that one is outright denial that you're sinning because you've now denied what Jesus actually says in the Word, or the other extreme, this carnal uplifting. I'm better than everybody. Because I'm hitting my own standards. Believer, the the key is more of him and less of you. The key is more of him and less of you. Back in 1 John 2, verse 9, John is building to explain the difference between the one that goes back to the darkness and the one that is abiding in the light. And one measure of abiding in the light, believer, is how you treat a fellow believer. That's a measure. You want to know how you're abiding in Christ? How do you treat your fellow believer? How do you treat someone else of like precious faith? there seems to be a distinction made than just merely your neighbor because it's a whole lot more personal it's someone you know a whole lot better than just your neighbor you see it's more difficult to love a brother or sister that we know on a personal level than the stranger that just said something nice to us in the drive through and we struck up a 5 minute conversation you don't know much about them, they don't know much about you. You think they're the best things since sliced bread. Which is where you and I get deceived all the time. We know someone for five minutes we think they love us more than the person that's invested years into our lives. Simply because they've hurt us at times. That's how deceptive we are in our hearts. It's heartbreaking sometimes. Because I dare say those closest to us have probably been hurt the most by us, if we're to be honest. Truth is, families hurt one another in ways that others never can, or ever will for that matter, and it most certainly applies in the church as well. The hatred that many times occurs in a brother or sister to someone else in the faith is due to living many times in darkness and that brother or sister is trying to help them back into the light. It's a prime example of this. A brother or sister is going astray and another brother or sister trying to pull them back into the light Say, Hey, look, you're going off here. Like, you're not seeing this, but you're off and you need help. You're judgmental. You don't care about me. You don't know who I am. I'm telling you, I love you. I want you back in the light. I want you to walk faithfully with Jesus again. Is that everybody? Of course not. Of course there are judgmental people in the church. I'm not arguing any of that. It can very well happen with a judgmental, self-righteous church member as well who goes around condemning others for their minor flaws while they have this massive log sticking out of their eye. They refuse to see it, though. I mean, it's obvious to everybody else but them. You've ever been around people like that? It's obvious to everyone else but them the flaw that they have. They keep denying it, and it's obvious that something's off. Maybe it was you. Maybe you were the one called out, and you refused to see it. That's why the point of this text is to examine yourself, not go, hey, how does this sermon apply to somebody else? The test in humility is many times when you are called out for something you've done wrong, not just in response to praise for something you've done right. You see, so many of us think that pride is just one of those things that we respond to when someone praises us, and that's true. But pride is also a response when someone confronts us on sin. And we refuse to accept that. The response with David is always a lesson in humility. Especially when he was called out for his sin. In fact, back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to read verses 1 through 15. This is so important in tying in what's going on in this text. 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 15. Then the Lord sent Nathan to to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the Son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin, you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. Huge lesson to be learned here in this text. I love the response of David initially as Nathan is building this narrative. He's getting worked up, right? How could someone do something like this? The illustration of the rich man that stole the poor man's lamb. He's angry and thinks that man man needs to be put to death. Does that ever remind you of maybe something you and I do sometimes? I can't believe they did that. They deserve those consequences. While at the same time not realizing that we probably do those same things maybe the person we're pointing the finger at is really us and we're not seeing it. Because those people are doing what we're doing. Nathan's response, by the way, is not an encouragement when he says, you're the man. He's calling him out. He's calling out David for what he himself did against God in breaking his commandments. Oh, if David's response was our response when we're confronted with sin. You don't see um, a lot of the explanations we give, right? When someone confronts us on sin or God confronts us on sin. I was tired. I did this. I did that. I sinned against the Lord. I sinned against the Lord. David realized that the real offense against others was really an affront to God. David literally killed to cover up sin. What lengths do you and I go through to cover up our own sin? And I I know many of us, we compare ourselves today, we're like, well, I didn't do something as bad as he does. I'm sure you've said that and thought that, because I have. Well, at least I've never done that. How could he do that? not thinking that your sin against others is not that big of a deal, believer. It's an affront to God. It's a big deal. And what's unfortunate is so many will go to their graves hiding what they should have dealt with in this life. Sin is what stops a church from having great communion. Unrepented of sin breaks fellowship. David showed humility, but there were still consequences. Just because you and I have a humble response doesn't mean the consequences go away. David lost something precious to him for taking something precious away from someone else. He lost his own child. He killed Uriah his child was taken from him. Sin has consequences, even though David's fellowship was restored. Back in 1 John 2, verse 11, John is stating that if a person hates his brother, which can simply mean a disregard of telling him the truth or refusing to see the truth when they've been confronted with it, it says, that he lacks direction. He doesn't know where he's going. People that don't know where they're going will be told multiple times by different people and they refuse to see that they're on the wrong path. In fact, they'll choose to find others that will tell them what they want to hear and hate their brother who shares the truth with them. You see, the truth is, a brother can comparatively care more for the world's advice at times than their Christian brothers. And that is how we start walking in darkness again. We disregard what a brother or sister says to us that aligns with the Word of God, and we hate them for it. And we go find our worldly buddies that will reaffirm our lifestyle choices. What's really disheartening is the fact that many faithful Christians see a brother or sister struggling, they want to approach them and help them, and they're disregarded as just a judgmental person. When there's a true heart to want to restore that believer into proper relationship with God again. Essentially what many in the church see as critics are actually coaches trying to help them. Are there critics in the church? Sure there are. I'm not arguing that there aren't. But maybe sometimes the person that's trying to help you is actually trying to help you, and you don't, they don't have an ulterior motive that you assume. Oh, they're just doing this so you can put more money in the offering plate for them. No. I'm well aware that many people I help in my life will never put anything in that box. I'm well aware of that. That's not why we're called a minister. There's probably nothing that breaks a pastor's heart more than to pour time and energy into someone only to have them walk away in disgust because they said something that didn't jive well with them. There are many that minister in the gospel trying to reach someone else and it pains them to see the hurt in that person's life that they're trying to spare them. And that person walks away in disgust because they don't like what's said. Jesus never wants you to stay in darkness as a disciple. Which is one of the reasons why we're called to what we're called to in Galatians chapter 6. To restore one who is weak. One who has fallen. All the while knowing that that person could run away even further. God sends others into our lives at times to help us see when we don't see for ourselves. You know, brother, sister, this might not seem like it's hurting you, but I promise you it is. I've seen the end result of that. Well, that's just you. That's just your opinion. No, that's actually the word of God. That's actually what's going to happen if you keep doing this. To some it may come across judgmental and proud, but this is a person trying to save a soul from serious consequences. You don't know the tears people have cried when you and I have walked away. I didn't get it. My mom cried a lot when I was a a boy growing up. Especially when I was a teenager. I wasn't your model teenager. not the son that I would have been proud of. But mom prayed. She cried. She warned. And I want to encourage every one of you in here that you know somebody that's not walking with God today, that's not in church today, that should be in church today. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep reaching out. And if you're that person that's walked away from God and you're watching this online, come back in the fellowship. Stop thinking that everybody's here to judge you because they want you back with the fold. We want you to be connected to Christ. The one who could care less for his brother is blind because he cannot see the results of his actions. It's easy to find someone that's outside the faith that will agree with us in our blindness because they're already in the darkness. Which is one of the reasons why it's such an easy partnership for a believer that walks outside of the things of God. When you're already walking in darkness, only other people in darkness are going to be your friends. It's not going to feel comfortable when a brother in the light is trying to pull you back. And unfortunately, many times, people outside the faith become a numbing agent for our conscience that has been seared. The truth is, disregard for the brethren is continually stumbling in the dark. The reason accountability matters is because it's clearly taught in Scripture and adopted by others in the world. The greatest accountability, though, is the Word of God, believer, not your personal opinion or mine. If you don't want to be around others in the church, you do need to ask yourself why that is. Be honest. Why do I not want to be the fellowship of the saints? The answer can very well be you're walking in darkness and the past has hurt you and your view of the whole church. Whenever a person says the church hurt me, they've painted everyone in that church with a broad brush when it may be a few people that have hurt them personally. Now, if it's leadership in a church that has absolutely dropped the ball and done things that are contrary to our Scripture. That I understand that. That's a deeper pain. It's a deeper hurt. You need to be back in the light, and that sometimes is found in the company of saints you've disregarded, rejected, or outright disdained. The love for the brethren is so vital that Jesus makes it a priority in identification before the world. Did you know that? Jesus makes this statement in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. You don't want to take what John's saying. Listen to what Jesus is saying. As I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus desires a genuine love for the saints. That they would genuinely love one another. Help one another when they're down. Build one another as they're growing. Walk together in love. You should care so much for your brother and sister that's gone astray, more so to pray for them than to share their faults to others. Confront where appropriate, but be balanced in grace and truth, believer. So in conclusion, it comes down to this. How would you evaluate yourself? How would you evaluate yourself? Are you someone that strives to live by the standards of scripture, or are they optional when you feel like it? You can't claim to follow the standards of Scripture without making Scripture a priority for your faith and practice, believer. You can't claim to follow the Word of God if you're not reading the Word of God. Are you struggling with assurance? Maybe you're just pummeled with guilt. You put on a front to impress others. Freedom is already found in Christ, believer. It's already there. You can't do it alone. Find someone else that's walking more faithfully and consistently. Not perfectly, because none of us are. But someone that's faithfully following the Lord. Learn from them. Does time with others in the faith simply not matter to you? Why? What's your reason? people have and will disappoint you, and at times they are at fault. But there's nowhere in the text of Scripture where it says because others have hurt you, you now no longer fellowship with the saints. Have you grown to resent and even despise other believers' input, not just disregard or ignore it? Maybe you've been walking in darkness for a while and others are calling you to the light. Today would be a good day to be honest about that. I go, you know what? That brother or sister, they've been telling me I need to do this, and I haven't. They've been telling me that I'm walking in darkness here, but I'm not seeing it, and I don't want to see it. And I just thought they were judgmental, and they don't love me. I've got this pride that's built up in my life, thinking what right do they have to tell me? Today would be the day to repent, turn back to God. And don't wait for that subjective feeling, believer. It may never come. Some of us are waiting for a feeling. Don't. You're not always going to feel like repenting or turning back to God. Just like you always feel like going to work every day, and you still do, don't you? Maybe you're not exactly sure how to love others genuinely. Take your cue from Christ himself. He ate with sinners but still called them to repentance. He showed compassion on the broken. And by the way, at times he called out pride, not just in the Pharisees, everybody mentions that, but his own disciples. Everybody always like, yeah, Jesus was harsh with the Pharisees. How about being called a tool of Satan, and you're one of his closest friends. Sounds very encouraging, doesn't it? Jesus was direct, not just with Pharisees, but even his closest friends. And brothers and sisters, we need to understand that sometimes we will be confronted if we need to take it properly, especially if we're in the wrong. There's no disputing that Jesus loved his disciples, is there? even when he called them out. In closing, Erwin Lutzer says this, Christianity demands a level of caring that transcends human inclinations.